Haggai 2, 10-19, hear the word of the Lord. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. On one trip I took overseas many years ago, I got terrible food poisoning. And then I didn't know I was allergic to the antibiotic sulfa, which is what they often give for intestinal things. And it was a very hot climate, and so anything was exposed to the sun broke out in this hideous rash. So I didn't know if I had leprosy or what it was, but... Um, I was looking very grotesque, and I'd lost about 10 pounds very quickly. But as I thought back on my trip, even though it was one of the most miserable trips I'd ever taken because of the sickness and then the reaction to the antibiotic, one of the things that I realized bothered me the whole time that I couldn't shake was this. It was exceedingly hot there, and the bathing facilities were very primitive. And so I never felt like I could get clean. The water didn't seem to be clean itself, and I never felt like I was clean during the whole trip. And I realized how bothersome that was to be dirty and not to be able to get clean. That actually is the situation we have here in Haggai. That's the situation of the people, and that's the the problematic here of of this section. Uh, The people were unclean, and the question was, how could they become clean? Clean, And that's a question for us as well. Now, we've seen in Haggai that there have been a series of sermons. And this sermon comes four months after the first sermon. So he just preached for a few months during the year 520 B.C. Uh, Back in Jerusalem, after the people had gone to exile, God had brought them back to the land, and they had rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, and they were to rebuild the temple. But as you recall from chapter 1, they were focusing on their own houses and not on the house of the Lord. And so in chapter 1, he calls them back. In that first sermon, he calls them back to reorient their priorities to have Him at the center of their lives because things were not going well without Him. And they did. 
They responded, they repented, and they began work on the temple. And so, four months after that first very successful sermon, and three months after they started rebuilding the temple, it took them a month to respond, and they started rebuilding the temple, and then two months after the sermon we saw last week. So this is the last day of his preaching. And this puts us on, amazingly, we can calculate this, to the day, just about. It was December 18th, 520 B.C. And here, the message is a bit different. Because the Lord goes to Haggai, and He tells Haggai, Go ask the priests for a ruling. Go ask the priests for a ruling. And He asks two questions of the priests. First of all, He asks the question about consecrated meat, holy Meat. Now, this is unusual for us, but in the temple, the sacrifices, they, they had various offerings, and some of the offerings were, were animal sacrifices. They were meat, and when they were used for that, they were holy to the Lord. So it was holy meat. And the priest would carry this holy meat, especially because the temple was not operating like it should. It wasn't, it wasn't completely functional. It was just very, very basic. They probably had to carry it more than they would have had the temple been functioning as it used to. And so the question is, if somebody carries meat, they didn't want to do it with their hands, it's holy, but if they carried this consecrated holy meat in the fold of their garment... If the fold of their garment then touched other food, would that holiness be transferred? So the idea was that, well, the garment would become consecrated or holy or set apart, but could that holiness be passed on to other food? And the priest said, no. It stops right there. The meat's holy, the garment is holy, but it doesn't keep going. There's not a chain of holiness. And so that's the answer to the first question, no. The second one is, well, what about if somebody has become ceremonially unclean because he or she has touched or been in the presence of a dead body? If that person touches other food items, will those food items become unclean, ceremonially unclean? And the answer to that question, this is in verses 12 and 13, the answer to that question is, yes, it will. So, uh, they're unclean, and if they have contact with the food, the food will become unclean. Now, this whole question, if you read the Old Testament, you find a great deal of interest in this question of cleanness and uncleanness. And for us, uh, it's, it's very difficult to understand some of these, these laws, and some of the the niceties and the details of them, I think, are lost upon us. Why this food, not that food, and so on. But the whole idea is this. God is holy. That's the message of all these rules. God is holy, and those who approach Him must be holy. Those who approach Him, if they are not in themselves holy, then they must be cleansed of their unholiness, of their uncleanness, in order to approach Him. Now, The problem here, as we see in these two rulings, is something all of us know. All of us know this. It is easier to become unclean than it is to become clean. Have you noticed that? Is it easier for your children to become dirty or easier for them to get clean? Dirty. What about your car? What about your house? What about your clothes? 
What about your body? What about your teeth? What about anything? It's easier for it to become unclean than it is for it to become clean. And and this doesn't go in both directions. Let's say we're going to do a science experiment here. And we have a, a container of dirty water and we have a container of clean water. And if we pour the dirty water into the clean water, what do we have? Dirty water. Okay? Dirty water. The dirty water makes the clean water dirty. Okay, let's say we go the other direction. Let's say we take the clean water and we pour it into the dirty water. What do we have? Dirty water. But that that doesn't seem fair, does it? If the dirty water can make the clean water dirty, why shouldn't the clean water be able to make the dirty water clean? But it doesn't work that way. It's easier to get dirty than it is to get clean. Now, God took care of this in the Old Testament. He took care of this by a series, and sometimes it's hard for us to to understand all these as we read through these laws of these sacrifices and offerings and so on. But he, he took care of this question of uncleanness by a series of ceremonies and sacrifices and offerings in order for the people to be ceremonially, ritually clean before him and in order for them to have their sins forgiven. And these sacrifices centered on one place. What was that place? It was the temple. So far, so good. But the whole problem here, after the exile, is what? The temple's not working. If, if, if the way to become clean is, is for, to offer these sacrifices in the temple, and the temple's not functioning properly, then, then where's the cleaning element? How do the people get clean? And even worse than that, and this is the the application here in verse 14, and it's very strong what he says here. Verse 14, he says, Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What's going on here? It looks like he's saying, do you remember the ruling about the dead body? And if somebody has contact with a dead body and then has contact with other things, food, uh, or other things, uh, items, then those things become unclean. And he's saying here that the temple is like a corpse in the middle of the city. And so when they go to that temple, that that temple functions like a corpse, and it, it makes them unclean, so that the work of their hands, and they themselves, and even the offerings that they are offering are unclean because they've been contaminated by this this dead corpse of a temple in the midst of the people. So do you see how how dire their situation was? Not only was the, the temple not functioning properly and fully for cleansing, but it was functioning in the opposite way. Instead of providing cleansing, it was causing them to be more unclean. And you see how tragic that is? If the cleansing element not only doesn't cleanse, but makes you more dirty, then what possible hope is there for becoming clean? I don't know whether you've done this. We probably all have. We've, we've reached into something. We thought it was soap, and it turned out to be something else, some other substance like grease or tar, and we begin to wipe something off with it. And what have we done? We thought we were using a cleansing agent, but we were actually making it more dirty. My, my father-in-law once grabbed a tooth of white paste, put it on his toothbrush, and started brushing his teeth. Then he discovered it, discovered it was desivin. 
I don't know if you all know what desinate is. It's zinc oxide. That didn't work. Now, I guess it might have whitened his teeth significantly, but it's, it's a white paste, but it did not work for the purpose. It was the wrong thing. He thought he was using a cleansing agent, but he was actually filling his mouth with, with greasy, viscous stuff. That's what was going on here. Now, all humans have the same problem that they did. The same problem of being unclean. And we recognize it to one degree or another. Some people are very aware of the fact that their thoughts and their words and their actions are, are not right. And, and at least, at least people, it's kind of a boastful statement, but at least people will fall back on, well, nobody's perfect. So, so everybody to one degree or another recognizes that we have this problem that there's something not right with the world and we're, prob- we're part of that, that not rightness of the world. And so what do we try to do? What we generally try to do, and this is what the religions of the world try to do, is they generally try to add good stuff in to try to clean up the bad stuff or overcompensate the bad stuff. That's how many religions function. But the problem is it's like that water. So you have a, 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 a container of dirty water And the idea is to try to pour clean water in there to make it clean, but no matter how much clean water you pour into that dirty water, the contaminants will still be there. And so there needs to be another solution. And in addition, in addition, sometimes the things that we think are clean that we're adding are actually dirty themselves. Notice here that through Haggai, God says that their works and their offerings before Him are unclean. This nation before me. You see, we make up things that we think are clean and we're, they're cleansing agents, but, but before God, those things might be further contaminants. So that's the, the dire situation of the day. And it's our situation as well. Now, what's the way forward? Verse 15, God comes to them and says, Now then, Consider from this day onward. And so what he does to them is he said, let's go forward. But before we go forward, there's a parenthetical statement here about the past. And then if you look at verse 18, he says once again, consider from this day onward. So in 15, he starts consider from this day onward. He's going to push them forward. And then in 18, he picks it up again. So the rest of 15, 16, and 17 are a parenthesis. And when we read that parenthesis... It says, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? And this sounds like familiar territory if we were here for Haggai chapter 1. He's reminding them. He's reminding them how it went for them when God was not at the center of their lives. He said, you, you went to the granary and you, you went to look for 50 measures, but there weren't 50 measures there. There were, there were only 20 measures, of, that's the wine. And when you went to the heap of grain, you looked for 20 measures, and there were only 10. When, when God wasn't at the center of their lives, they, they kept coming up short. And He reminds them of that. He reminds them of that. And that's the whole point of His first sermon in chapter 1. And then He moves forward in verse, verse 15, and then in verse 18. Forward to what? Well, look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. 
consider. And this consider is this, this expression we've heard a number of times. Take to heart. Set it to your heart. Now, there are some different translations here. It's really, it's really um, a question of interpretation here. But in verse 18, he says, Consider from this day onward. And then he says, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. And the question is, when was the temple, uh, temple foundation laid? Because there was a temple foundation laying ceremony 16 years earlier, but he doesn't seem to be referring to that. He could be referring to three months before that, when they started the work on the temple. But as we noticed, that when you start a project, and especially an archaeological project like that, to restore a ruin, much of the first work is doing what? It's, it's clearing out the rubble. So we can easily imagine, also they needed wood. They needed wood, and they were told that in chapter 1. So we can imagine that during the first three months, they really hadn't made progress in in constructing. They, They would have been clearing out the rubble and gathering the supplies. So what it looks like here, and I think this is the best reading here, and that is that the day, that day when he was preaching, what day? 24th day of the ninth month, December 18th, Uh, 520 B.C., that was the day of the temple foundation ceremony. It looks like they'd gotten to the point where they could start building and they were going to have a celebration, they were going to have a ceremony. We do that, don't we? we? We get people out with shovels and we have what? a groundbreaking ceremony. And they they stand there with the shovel and they put it into the ground and they all smile for the picture. Or, if it's a large building, a historic building, they have a cornerstone laying, right? And it has the date of the cornerstone. And you see that in, in old, magnificent buildings. So it looks like that's what they were doing here. They were having a ceremony to say, we are starting to build today. And Haggai shows up with a word from the Lord. So he is the self-invited ceremonial speaker of the day. And he shows up at this ceremony. That's what it looks like is going on here. And he has a word from the Lord. And what's the word from the Lord? He says, think about this day. Forward. Okay, I reminded you of the past. I reminded you how it was your lives, how they were when God was not at the center of your lives. I reminded you, but we're not going back there. I want you to think about this day. Set this day to your heart. Mark your life. From this day forward. And what does he say about this day forward? Consider, verse 19. Here again, verse 19 uh, is, is not difficult to translate in terms of, terms of the words, but the question is, are these questions or are these statements? And here this version kind of cut the difference. Some people make them two statements. Some translations make them two questions. Here they cut the difference. They made a question and a statement. And it says, Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. It could be two questions. Have the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree yielded nothing? What is this either statement or question? It gets to the same thing. And that's what? The harvest hasn't come in yet. The seed is not in the barn. Why is the seed not in the barn? Because it's in the field. They they had planted. And that's the significance of the date. By the middle of December, the planting was over. It was over. They had done all that they could to have a good harvest. Now on what were they dependent? They could do nothing more. They had done all they could as farmers. On what were they dependent? Well, they were dependent on the rain. They were dependent on the weather. But who controls the rain and the weather? 
So do you see the point of these statements, these questions? You've done all you can. You've done all you can. Now it is completely in God's hands. Completely in God's hands. The results of your efforts. And what does he say? The last line. This is the, this is the point. All of it's been leading up to this. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the turning point, folks. Remember this day. Write it down. They did write it down. We have the date to this day. They remembered this day. This was the turning point. This ceremony marked a change in their their lives. Because God was saying, from this day on, I will bless you. Concretely, what does that mean here? It means the next harvest will not like be, the, will not be like these pitiful harvests you've had in the past. You, you won't look for 20 and find 10. You, you will have an abundant harvest. I will bless you. I will give you an abundant harvest again. Now, what do we have here? We have an example of a couple of things. It's an example of a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And it's this. Of people taking little steps of obedience. Little steps of obedience and God magnifying the results beyond all imagination. All imaginations. That's a pattern through Scripture. We could, we could see Abraham. Go back to Abraham. Look at Moses. Look at Gideon. Look at Hannah. Look at Mary and Joseph. Look at Peter. Look at Paul. Look at, look at just about any of the, the saints of the, the Old Testament times or New Testament. And what did they did? They took steps. Sometimes they were big, bold steps, but oftentimes they were little, frightened steps, haltering steps, faltering steps. And, and what did God do? Amazing things. He would take their little efforts and turn them into huge things. Now, I don't want to, to despise those little efforts because little efforts for us are often a big deal, aren't they? And we think about these people. This was a big deal. They were facing economic scarcity. And God was saying, don't spend all your time working on your own businesses. Take time out of your valuable days and weeks and work on my house first. That, that was a big step. We might say it was a little thing, but actually for them it was a big step. Because they were facing scarcity and so they might have been tempted to work harder on their own jobs and neglect the Lord's house even more. But you see, once they had reoriented their priorities with God in the center, even though the temple was still a mess, even though they hadn't gotten anywhere, their lives had changed. And God says, now that your lives have changed... I will take these small steps of yours and magnify them into something grand and glorious. And the second lesson here is this. It's also an example of God taking care of our needs when He is at the center of our lives. When He is at the center. Now, they saw how it was going for them when He wasn't at the center, when He was not their priority. And here we have the opposite. When, when he is at the center, had they accomplished much yet? No, they hadn't accomplished much yet. But what had they said? They had said, Lord, we want you at the center of our city. We want you at the center of our lives. And God says, this day forward, from this day forward, things will work better for you. I will bless you. 
Jesus preached a sermon about this. He said, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the unbelievers, the Gentiles, seek after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. He's saying, put God, put the kingdom of God in the center of your life, your first priority, and He'll take care of those needs. He knows that you need them, and He will take care of you. Now, this initial blessing, as I mentioned, was a good harvest. One good harvest year. That's what He started with. But as we have seen, as we finish the rest of the story in Scripture, we've seen that that was just a start to the blessing that God was going to pour out upon His people. We saw last week that He shook down the nations, and He shook the treasures out of their pockets, and He took that temple, that that pitiful effort of those people, and He made it into a temple more glorious than Solomon's temple, using the riches of the nations. And then we saw as well that He did something even more glorious. He became one of us, and made His tabernacle among us. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And now, as we've seen also, He's building His church, which is the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where God dwells now. He's building His church. But there's one more step that I want you to see. If we go all the way to the end of Scripture, this is the end game here. Revelation 21 where John looks and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and the holy city, New Jerusalem, was coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. But if we keep reading and jump down to verse 22, we find a curious detail. It says this, And I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple in the city. And then it says, why not? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So now we see the whole point of the temple. It was a picture. It was a shadow. It was an anticipation. It was a temporary measure for God to dwell with His people. But the whole idea, the whole point was to dwell with them without the need of a temple. Do you remember even when Solomon finished his temple and he dedicated his temple and he kind of looked at it and laughed and said, God's not going to dwell here. Can the one who made the highest heavens dwell in this box that I have made? And he knew that it was insufficient. He knew that this wasn't the end game, even as he looked at it and he contemplated God. And so we see that that the temple was always pushing us forward. And in 70 AD, what happened to that last version of the temple that Herod had built? It was knocked down by the Romans, not to be rebuilt again. Why? Because it's not necessary again. And why is it not necessary again? Because God has come to dwell among His people in Jesus Christ. 
God has come to dwell among His people in the Holy Spirit. And God one day, when the new heavens and the new earth are established, will dwell among His people without need of any sort of temple. Now, the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. But we see, so we see rather, that it wasn't the way we could get cleansing after all. If we look at Revelation 21, and we find God just dwelling with His people very directly, sort of like back in Eden where He just walked among them. And we ask our question, what happened to the problem? Do you remember the whole problem here? The problem was what? Uncleanness. And so, if we find at the end of the Bible that God is is among His people, they are His people, He is their God, there is no need of a temple because they are there together, we ask the question, what happened? What happened to that uncleanness? What did God do? If God wiped the temple off the scene, then, then what did He do? Well, Jesus tells us what He did. Jesus was there and at the temple... And he, he, he sent a challenge to the people. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And of course they were confused. They said, this has taken decades to build. How can you rebuild it in three days? And then finally they realized, his disciples later realized that he was talking about what? He was talking about his body. And so we see that we do need, in order to be cleansed, We need a temple to be destroyed and to be rebuilt again. And that's what we have in Haggai. The temple was destroyed, rebuilt it again, but that was pointing to our need for a temple to be destroyed and to be really rebuilt again. Jesus, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And that's exactly what happened, folks. They they did what they could to destroy that temple. They killed that temple that God in human flesh, they, they killed that human flesh. But on the third day, He rose again from the dead. And that's the answer to the whole question of the Old Testament, and the whole question of Scripture here. How can we be cleansed? Well, the only way we can be cleansed is if the temple is destroyed and it's rebuilt three days later. That's how God can dwell among us. That's how we can approach God. That's how we can have a relationship with God. Through Christ. God with us, destroyed, three days later, risen from the dead. That's the the final answer, and really the only answer, to how we can be forgiven, how we can be cleansed from all our uncleanness, and have that relationship with God that we have always needed and desperately wanted. Well, let's pray. Our God, we've shown throughout history that we've wanted a relationship with You, but we've done it very poorly. We've created idols in our own image. We have come up with rituals that didn't please You because we made them up, and we were just desperately trying to to get the muck off ourselves. And it didn't work. And we thank You, God, for Jesus, who is the Son of God, tabernacling with us, whose temple was destroyed and raised up on the third day. God, we thank You for Jesus, the, the true temple. And we thank You for this call, once again, to have You at the center of our lives. 
Lord, we, we thank You for this reminder because we, like the people of that day, can easily forget. We can easily push You aside. We can easily busy ourselves with our things. And we pray, O oh God, that we would take this reminder to heart that from this day forward, that we would have You at the center of our lives and that everything else would fall into place according to Your good plan for Your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.